0: What makes Jesus greater than Jonah is that he doesn't deserve the cross. Jonah deserved the storm, right? Jonah deserved to probably be thrown overboard here because he's, he's been operating out of disobedience. Jesus doesn't deserve the cross, but he sacrifices his life anyway. He didn't deserve death, but Jesus, catches he goes to a cruel, rugged cross. That's what he does because sin had a wage and that wage is death. That's what Paul tells us. And instead of you having to die for your sin, Jesus loved you so much that he decided to take your place. Huge thought. This is critical a critical theological truth right here that, that we can miss and, and, and not completely understand. And it's this right here, that Jesus didn't just die for you, Jesus died as you. It's not just for you, it's as you. It's—it's it's, He's taking on your sin and my sin. He's taking on your punishment and my punishment. And when he went to that cross, his blood, it covered your past sins. Thank you, Jesus. It covered your present sins. Thank you, Jesus. And even your future sins are no match for the blood of Jesus. Jesus' sacrifice leads to salvation. Very similar to Jonah, but the difference is that it's not just salvation from death, it's salvation from hell, and the grave. Well, hey, good morning, everybody. Hey, uh, so good to be back together again today. Uh, We are in week five, the final installment of a teaching series we've been in uh, called A Runaway People, and uh, this morning's message is going to take a uh, noticeable turn. Uh, It it will be unlike uh, the previous four weeks, uh, as uh, I I want to kind of... Really, take some time to sort of compare Jesus and Jonah. I want to I want to present a message to you today called uh, "Jesus: A True and Better Jonah," and uh, and I, and I believe that uh, um, I believe it's 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 going to be uh, powerful. It, it's really an interesting approach because I've never really taught a message quite like this. And um, and and really, one of the primary focuses of this message is just to to really teach us how we should. Read and intake scripture, um, and I think I think that if you if you kind of open yourself up to the, this uh, message this morning, open up your hearts. I think it could be meaningful and, and powerful for you. Um, on December seventeenth, nineteen oh three, history was made as brothers Orville and Wilbur Wright made their first flight on an airplane at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. Famous story; most of us are, are familiar with it. On their fifth attempt that day, the plane under the control of Orville. Uh, it embarked on a 12-second flight. Wilbur, upon seeing this, he runs to the local telegraph office, and he sends the following message home. It simply said, "We have flown for 12 seconds. We will be home for Christmas." Upon receiving the telegram, their sister Catherine went to the local newspaper office and told the editor that, uh, of of her brother's new flying machine and that they would be home for Christmas in case uh, they wanted to interview them for the paper. The editor uh, told her that that was nice, uh, you know, glad to hear it, and he'd be sure to put something in the paper regarding the boys. On December 19th, two days after this historic flight, the local newspaper printed the following headline on the sixth page of the paper, Wright Brothers, Home for Christmas. an interesting story like I, I think about this editor and and, and who, whose job is to print like newsworthy headlines right to to sort of curate what's going on that's significant that people need to know about and to print it in the paper and what this editor is is just been given is the most important story of the year a uh, man's first flight it's probably you know one of the you know one of the most important stories in history, and yet the editor completely missed it. Is that interesting? Completely miss it. I wonder if you've ever had a situation in your life where the answer was staring you in the face, like right under your nose, but you completely missed it. You're like, you ever had that where you're like, after afterwards, you're like, oh my gosh, it was so obvious. How did I not know? You ever, you ever like, you have know, been taking a, remember taking a test and. Uh, you're stuck on a question or something and, and uh, after you turn it in and afterwards they give the answers you're like, oh my gosh, how did I forget that? I remember uh, growing up, whenever I would you know be looking for something, maybe I'd misplace it, not be sure where it is. Um, sooner or later, I'd find it and it'd be like right where I was looking. I just I didn't see it. My mom was known to say something like, man, if it was any closer, it would have jumped up and bit you in the butt, right? That was... That's my mom. One of my mom's things, and to which uh, we always appreciated that. So, um, I, even now to this day, like like if I'm looking for something around the house, like I hate to I hate to ask Lindsay because I know that when I ask her, she's going to find it. You know, I I just know. I'm like, how did I miss it? Recently, I was uh, I was moving some books from one office to the other, and. Uh, there was a, a, a book that I was carrying and, and it fell out of my hands, hit the ground, and this envelope fell out of it. And um, I'd, I'd never seen it before. I had my name on it though. I said, Pastor Jordan in handwriting. And, and I opened it up and it was a handwritten letter from a, a woman who used to, uh, uh, or who attended a church that we previously were a part of. And uh, it, it was front and back like, like, a, like a page of paper and there was $25 cash in there dated 2010, and I was like, wow, like this is, I, 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 it was a great book, by the way. Uh, uh, yeah, clearly never read the book. But I, uh, she had given this to me and, and had written a, stuck a note in there, and I had never seen it. And I've thought about that like many times in the last three weeks. And it, it brought me to this thought, if you're taking notes, that when you're not looking for something, it's very easy to miss it, very easy to miss it. When you're not searching for it, like I didn't know it was there, and so I, if I had known that she had stuck money in the in in, in there uh, and 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 a note, like I I would have, I would have gone searching for it. I would have gone looking for it. But when you don't know what you're looking for, you're not looking for it. It's very easy to miss it. And I think that many times in life, the answer, the thing that we're looking for, is actually staring us right in the face. But if we're not intentional about what it is we're searching for we just might miss it. And I think that this is exactly how the Bible works, okay? It's exactly how Scripture works. I think it's very easy when reading the Bible to simply compartmentalize it, to just read it for some good principles, to read it for some good stories and some historical facts and some inspiration and all of that is is, is somewhat okay and understandable. But listen to me this morning, if you aren't reading the Bible through the lens of Jesus, you are missing all of its power all of it you're missing the complete point of scripture you don't have the complete picture because you're missing you know the final piece to the puzzle i want to talk to you today about this idea that the whole bible from genesis to revelation is shouting out one name and that name is jesus What I've learned is that if you're not looking for Jesus all throughout the Bible, it can be very, very easy to miss him. You'll just read some good stories. There'll be some kind of maybe some spiritual truths that'll inspire you a little bit. But if you aren't looking for Jesus in every text that you are reading, you are going to miss him. You're going to miss it. I want you to consider this thought today, key thought for the day, that the entire Bible is about Jesus, all of it. I wanna be super clear about something this morning, really clear. As Christians, the only message we have is the message of Jesus, okay? That's all we got. We have no message, none, that does not include Jesus. None. He has to be, every time the word is taught, he has to be brought in to that, to that message. Like you can't just give a message that doesn't include him. He is not a principal. He's not a good idea. He's not a guru. He's not a philosopher. He's not a self-help coach, right? He is a saving king. This is who Jesus is, and the whole Bible from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, is trying to give us a picture, trying to give us a shadow, trying to give us a glimpse of who God is, and that picture is Jesus. I want you to see what the writer of Hebrews says about this. In Hebrews 1, chapter uh, 1, verse 3, It says the Son, okay, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and what? The exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, thank you, Jesus, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So what what, what is the author of Hebrews saying here? He's saying that Jesus is the the exact picture of God. You wanna know who God is, you look at Jesus. You get hung up on some of the stories in the Old Testament that are difficult to stomach. We don't know uh, how to handle some of those. You look at Jesus to understand who God really is. He is our one and only message. What's even more interesting to me is that Jesus made this claim. He made this very same claim. He made the claim in the Gospels that the entirety of scripture is about him. I want you to to look at a few verses with me. John chapter five, Jesus says this. He says to those listening, you diligently study the scriptures. So What he's talking about here are the Hebrew scriptures. He's talking about the Torah. He's talking about the Old Testament law. He says, you diligently study these things. He's speaking to first century Jews. He says, you study these things because you think that by them you possess eternal life. So he's saying, you keep the law, You keep the morality of of the old covenant. You try to attain these things because you think that if you can do it well enough, you'll possess eternal life. Jesus says, but these are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have eternal life. Like this is the reality of, of, of Jesus and his time here on earth is that he was the one that they were waiting for. He was the long awaited Messiah, their deliverer. He was the one with the message of hope and they did not embrace him as their Messiah. Jesus is telling these people who are listening that you are spending all of this time reading all of these scriptures trying to find life but what you don't realize is that all of these scriptures are talking about me and that it is only in me that you find life. You know, Sometimes when we read the Bible, it can be a tough read. Anybody, anybody ever felt that? You ever been like, man, that's a tough read? Like, like you ever you ever, I mean, honest, like you, you ever just kind of drifted off while you're reading and just just sort of had some squirrel moments? Like, what are they talking about? It can be difficult to understand. There's certainly some some parts of it that can feel boring to us. It can feel lifeless, even, just like very stale, powerless. I want, to, I want to tell you something really important. Like, it's not that the Bible doesn't have power. That's not, like, we know that it does. It's just that the only way you discover its power is by discovering what the Bible is really all about. And that is Jesus. It's all about him. Look at what else Jesus says. He says this in, in Luke 24, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets. Okay, so Moses, uh, he, here in this verse, is referring to the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the Torah, okay? uh, Moses wrote those books. So beginning with Moses, beginning with the Torah, and all the prophets. So these are the major prophets, right? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, all of those. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Again, Jesus is speaking about Hebrew scriptures. He's speaking about Torah. He's speaking about all of that and about their most famous leader. There's nobody more famous than Moses. And he's saying, look, everything Moses was talking about, everything he said, everything you hold dear, it's about me. Furthermore, all those ancient prophecies, all those things you read about, about the coming Messiah, all the ancient prophecies, they're about me. Scandalous. You go down about 20 verses, Luke 24, 44. This is again Jesus. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. Here it goes. In the law of Moses, the prophets, and then he adds in the Psalms. He says the Psalms too are about me. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. I I, I wanna wanna just encourage you today, if, if you struggle with the Bible sometimes, if, 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 if it's something that just kind of bores you, you're not sure how to understand it, like pray that prayer that God would open up your mind so that you could understand the scriptures. He'll do it. He will absolutely do it. Jesus is communicating this idea that all of scripture is about him and if you don't know that you're looking for Jesus, especially in the Old Testament, I think, you'll just read certain passages and stories and you will completely miss him. And I want to just say this to you, that if you read the Bible without looking for Jesus, you're reading, there's a couple of things. You're reading the Bible incorrectly. And two, you're removing its power. Because the power is not in the pages of the word. The power is in the person of the word. And his name is Jesus, okay? John 1, 1 what, is it, what does it tell us? That the word became flesh. Jesus is the word. In fact, one of the things, if I if I could I mean, I will teach this until I die. If there was one thing I could get to shift in our thinking around the Bible is that every time we heard the word, we would immediately think of Jesus, not the Bible. I love the Bible. I preach it all the time, right? But Jesus is the word. The Bible is not the word. Jesus is the word. He is the word that became flesh. And so the power of scripture is in Jesus. It's in the person of the word. John Calvin, one of the famous uh, theologians that we have um, in history, says this. He says, we ought to read the scriptures with the express design of finding Christ in them. Whoever shall turn aside from this object, though he may weary himself throughout his whole life in learning, will never attain the knowledge of truth. So he's saying, even though you study the Bible your whole life, even though you go to seminary, even though you do all these things, if you're not looking for Jesus, for Christ in the scriptures, you're gonna weary yourself. You're You're not gonna find what it's really all about. For what wisdom can we have without the wisdom of God? And then Spurgeon, great uh, pastor, uh, author, theologian, uh, who, who uh, at, one, at one point uh, pastored like the largest uh, church in the world uh, in London. Uh, we have a lot of his old, old sermons still with us today. Um, uh, he said this, he says, for every text in scripture, there is a road to the metropolis of the scriptures that is Christ. For every text, there is a road to the hub. There is a road to the epicenter of scripture, and that is Jesus, it's Christ. He says, and my dear brother, your business is when you get to a text to say, now what is the road to Christ? And he goes on and he says, I've never found a text that had not got a road to Christ in it. So if you're taking notes this morning, I want you to catch this. The whole Bible is shouting one name, and it's Jesus Christ. The whole Bible is shouting His name. And the reason why this matters, the reason why this matters is because Jesus is alive. We firmly believe that. And the Bible comes alive to us the moment we make the connection that Jesus is the point of scripture. Like I I want you to catch this thought. When all all of the Old Testament, when you read it, is pointing to the cross. It's pointing to Jesus. All of it. Every bit of it is pointing to Jesus. Everything in the New Testament and everything that in in history sense is pointing back to the cross it's all pointing back to Jesus. He is the the center of it all. He's the hub, he's the missing piece. He's the one that puts the scriptures into their proper context. Jesus is the lens through which we read and understand the entire Bible. And I wanna show you how this works, okay? I don't wanna just like teach, I wanna show you, I'm I'm gonna spend the morning kinda showing you how this works, okay? Um, One of the things you're gonna find as you read the Bible correctly is that much of its literary structure and style involves there being uh, what we're gonna call a story within a story, a story within a story. So an example, have you ever like had a sheet of paper, you hold it up in the light and you, you see like a, a watermark or something printed on there and you're going, man, I, I, didn't, I didn't see it until I looked at it a certain way. This is exactly how the Bible works. Oftentimes there is a story within the story. Most of the stories in the Bible, what we find are stories that are building upon other stories that, that we should know if we're familiar with the Old Testament. In fact, the entire New Testament is really written under this assumption that we do know the Old Testament. Like, you, if you, I mean, how many times does the New Testament like, like hearken back to the Old Testament? And you're going, man, like if you don't know the Old Testament, it's really tough to understand completely the New Testament. So it's all written under this assumption. And what you'll find by reading the Bible through this correct literary approach is that there will be stories that are retold and rebranded. Stories that you're familiar with, uh, that, that, that are, that are to- retold and rebranded uh, through new stories to kind of make them richer. And, and, and the significance of that is, is, is that these new stories, they're not like allegories, they're not like, they're, they're historical. It doesn't take away from the historicity of each of these individual stories um, it doesn't take away from the truthfulness of the stories either. They're just written in a way to broaden and deepen our understanding. And, and so one of those stories, I'm going to teach you how this works, is found in the gospel of Mark chapter four, and it's a story of Jesus in a storm. And this story has a story within a story. I want to I want to show it to you here in Mark uh, 4, 35. It says this, very famous story, okay? that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side, leaving the crowd behind. One of the things to to, to know about Mark and the way he wrote is that every time he mentions the crowd, it's never a good thing, okay? So the crowd, leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were other boats with him. That's a key, that's a key. This is, this is Mark making us understand that, that this is historical. This isn't an allegory. This really happened. There's other, there's other witnesses. There's, there's other boats in the, in, in the water. It says in verse 37 that a furious squall came up, okay, a furious storm, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus, in verse 38, was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. Apparently, it was really comfortable because there's a big storm going on outside, and, uh, and he's fast asleep says the disciples woke him and said to him teacher don't you care if we drown he got up rebuked the wind and said to the waves quiet be still and the wind died down and it was completely calm and he said to his disciples why are you so afraid do you still have no faith I love 41 it says they were terrified complete calm complete peace they were terrified and ask each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Mark tells us that there was a furious storm, and that's key in understanding the story within the story. Jesus and his disciples are on this boat. There's a huge storm that comes upon them It threatens to destroy the boat. The boat's taking on water. The disciples are afraid for their lives, as as, as we know by now, but where is Jesus, right? Jesus is asleep. He is asleep. Asleep, he's gone below deck, he's passed out on a cushion. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, if you've been with us over the last four weeks, you might start hearing a story within a story, right? Again, there there is this boat in Mark 4 being tossed by the wind and the waves, and their lives are in danger, and they need help. They need Jesus, and he's asleep below deck. So they go, and they wake him up, and they they say to Jesus, they say, teacher... Do you not care if we die, if we drown? A question that probably a lot of us are familiar with. You ever said something like that to God? Do you not even care? Don't you even care? Where, like, you ever had a moment where you expected God to show up a certain way and he didn't, and you're just like, man, where are you? Like, do you not even care what I'm going through? It's a question many of us ask at many different times. Jesus comes up on deck, the Bible tells us that he rebukes the storm. Right? So we get this idea that it's, a, it's, a, it's actually like a like spiritually uh, motivated, it's a spiritually driven storm. He rebukes it like you would rebuke a demon. right? So, um, and, and so he comes up on deck, rebukes the storm. He says, quiet or peace, be still. And the winds die down. It's completely calm. It's like glass. And upon witnessing Jesus do this, the disciples were filled with fear, terrified, and said to themselves, who is this man? Who is this man? We thought we knew. Like they've been around him, they've seen him do some pretty amazing things, they thought they knew who he was, and now they, have, they don't know. We've never seen this before. Who is this man? Obviously, what we know is that Jesus is so much more than just a man, right? We know this. In fact, we believe theologically as a church what has been true orthodox theology for thousands of years, that Jesus is both God and man. And, and, and I wanna explain that to you. It's not that, it's not that Jesus is, is, is part God and part man, like, you know, like Hercules in, in, in Greek mythology, right? Which, which is fictitious anyway. But, but we firmly believe that Jesus was 100% God and he is 100% man, okay? It's, it's a theological term called the hypostatic union. We believe this, it's, it's key. This is critical to believe, that he is all God and he is all man. And so we know in this story that he's not, like when they say, who is this man? He's not just a man. He's also like like the embodiment of God in the flesh. And so when we we look for the story in the story, we go back to the book that we've been studying for the past several weeks. We go back to the book of Jonah. And as many of you recall, like, like Jonah also finds himself in a boat in the middle of a storm, it's very, very, very similar. Like Jesus, he goes below deck. He falls fast asleep. He continues to sleep through the storm just like Jesus did. And the sailors, who very similar to the disciples in Mark 4, the sailors uh, are afraid for their lives, thinking this boat's gonna break apart. So they go down and they wake up Jonah. Jonah tells them that the only way that this storm is going to stop is if you throw me overboard into the sea. Now, What's Jonah really communicating to them? What's he really saying? He's saying, in other words, my death will create peace for you. This is, this is what Jonah's saying. He's saying, like, like, you want the storm to die down? You want peace? He goes, it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna take my life. He, he says, you gotta throw me overboard, and, 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 and if you sacrifice me, it will save you. So they throw Jonah over the boat, right? Uh, all of a sudden, everything becomes calm, well, why does the sea become calm? The sea becomes calm because of this thought. Jonah's God, who is Yahweh, the, you know, the, the, it's the Hebrew word for God in the Old Testament. Jonah's God, who is Yahweh, calms the storm. It's, again, it's a spiritual storm. The reason, the whole reason why the storm came is because, is because uh, as I mentioned earlier in this series, when, when God threw the waters into a storm, it's the same Hebrew word for... When King Saul threw a javelin at, at David, trying to pin him against the wall. So, so God is quite literally like throwing a storm at Jonah, like a javelin, trying to pin him down, trying to keep him from running. And so it's a, it's just a spiritual storm, it's a storm intended for Jonah. Mark 4, back to Mark 4. Mark is retelling the story of Jonah with Jesus. But it's, it's not a made-up story, it's, it's historical. Mark's retelling the story in a way to show how Jesus is fulfilling all of the Old Testament, uh, which, which again is what Jesus said about himself in John chapter five and Luke 24. So when we look at Jesus in the Gospels, he is, he is literally fulfilling everything in the Old Testament. He's fulfilling everything in the Hebrew scriptures. Remember what Jesus said about himself? He says, I did not come to abolish those things. I didn't come to abolish the law. What did I What did he come to do? He came to fulfill it. He didn't come to do away with the law. He didn't come to do away with all of all of those things that they that they hold dear. He came as the fulfillment of those things. He didn't come to do away with the sacrificial system. He came to fulfill uh, what what the, the, the whole reason why the sacrificial system existed. He, he, he was the only perfect spotless sacrifice. The, the sacrificial system wasn't needed anymore. Because of Jesus, so He came to fulfill everything that the Old Testament talks about. You got you guys with me this morning? Are you still with me? Okay. And sometimes I just get a little insecure up here. <laughs> I just want to know you're with me. Um, so Jesus in Mark four, He's asleep on His boat, and they wake Him up. And what happens? He rebukes the wind and the waves, and they immediately become calm. Uh, There's complete peace. And we see at the end of the story that Mark records an enormous question that was asked by the disciples Who is this man that even the wind and the seas or the wind and the waves obey him? Well, the correct answer to that question is that the God, the God, Yahweh, who calmed the storm in Jonah's day, is actually in the boat here in Mark 4 in the person of Jesus. Who is this man? This is Yahweh in the flesh. He is here in the boat. He's not just a man, he's also God. And knowing the story within the story makes us so much more powerful, so much more powerful. That's how we read the scriptures. So let me just give you a few more examples here. Jonah, we've been been in the book now for four weeks and and, he's the runaway runaway prophet. We've learned many lessons from his life. Um, But today I wanna take just a few more minutes and show you, in addition to Mark 4, three signs of Jesus in the book of Jonah. There's there's many more actually. Uh, I don't have a ton of time left, so we're just gonna do what we can get done today. When you're looking for Jesus in the scriptures, you may notice that many times Jonah and Jesus will look similar, yet Jesus will always be the true and better Jonah. Jesus will always do what Jonah could only ever dream of doing. He'll do what Jonah could never do. And, and so what I wanna show you are just some of the similarities. Uh, number one, both men, both Jonah and Jesus are tasked with a mission, tasked with a mission. Jonah's given a pretty big mission. We know the story by now. The Bible says the word of the Lord came to Jonah, telling him to go to the great city of Nineveh, which was an incredibly evil place to preach against all the sin that is going on there. The only problem is that Jonah doesn't wanna to go to Nineveh. He's not interested in that mission, that task. He has some fear. He has some fear of going to Nineveh Due to, due to them being Israel's greatest enemy, <laughs> right? And, and not just that, they're known as a, as a barbaric, barbaric people who, uh, who torture people, they skin them alive, they behead people. I mean, it's just, he, he doesn't want to go. He, he, just like you and me, like we don't, we don't want to do that. And so Jonah going to Nineveh meant that he'd have to, listen, going to Nineveh meant that he'd have to risk his life in order to serve his enemies. Not interested in doing that, so instead of obeying God's call on his life, he disobeys. He disobeys in a big way, board, uh, boarding a ship that's headed 2,500 miles in the opposite direction from Nineveh. A couple questions on this. Number one, have you ever noticed how much disobedience can appear to be easier? You ever notice that? Like in the moment, disobedience seems a whole lot easier. Like it's Even like it's a good idea. You know, um, every Sunday, like, I, I come to church and... <laughs> It never seems like a bad idea for me to eat a donut like here on Sunday morning. It never seems like a bad idea. Every week I'm like I want one. And every time I give in, I regret it. Like I'm like, "Oh, I feel gross. Why did I eat that?" I always regret it. How y'all you know that it never feels bad to hit the snooze on your alarm? Never feels bad. Always feels good. At the same time, it's never good to show up late to work over and over and over again. It's never good to get your kids to school late over and over and over That's not a good look. Disobedience always feels good in the moment, but just about always seems to take us to a place that we never intended to go. Am I right? Conversely, look at this thought. Obedience almost never feels good in the moment. Almost never feels good. Isn't that interesting? It usually hurts. It's, it's typically hard. I, I remember... Uh, even just this, this past year during 21 days of prayer and fasting, you know, trying, trying to fast and, 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 and go the distance and just, it hurt. It's not fun. I'm trying to obey God. I believed he had called me to a certain type of fast and I just, I wanna give in. I wanna, I wanna stop. I don't wanna do this. I started to get pretty irritable, you know? Um, almost never feels good. Disobedience almost always feels good at least for a while, it seems to us like it's going to solve our problems because sin is pleasurable for a season. Yet it will always take you, here's the thought, you've probably heard this before, it'll always take you further than you wanna go, it'll keep you longer than you wanna stay, and it will cost you more than you ever intended to pay. So Jonah thought that running from God would solve all of his problems, but all it really did was further complicate his problems. And what we see in Jonah in this story um, is a man who was given a mission, but he disobeys God. Uh, When you read the story of Jonah, there are parts of it that seem to be very similar to Jesus, like I said, but I want you to look at the difference with me. I want you to learn how Jesus is a true and better Jonah. Like Jonah, Jesus is also given a mission from God, is he not? And the mission isn't just to go to Nineveh with a salvation message. His mission is to go into all the world with a message of salvation a little bit bigger mission. And like Jonah, Jesus came not just to serve those that he loves and those who love him, Jesus came to serve his enemies, very similar to Jonah. Romans 5.10, right, just to prove it to you, for if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Jesus came to serve his enemies, of which we were. This is the power of Jesus, when God gave him a mission, he wasn't disobedient, he was obedient. And, and, and here's the difference between him and Jonah. Jesus doesn't just risk his life, right? He gives up his life. He lays it down. He comes to serve his enemies, and as they are crucifying him, instead of calling down curses on his enemies, he's praying for them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. How many of y'all know that you wouldn't make a very good Jesus? Anybody? Man, I'll just be honest with you. Like, if, if, if you ever decide to put nails in my hands, I will not be praying for you. I'll be praying for me. You know what I mean? Like, that's just, it's just I, I'm not a very good Jesus. Uh, this is why Jesus is greater. This is why he's so much better than Jonah. Jonah's story is one of a reluctant prophet who disobeys God to the point um, Jesus obeys God, um, comes on a mission to serve his enemies. The point of death. So the story of Jonah, if you're taking notes, exists to show us that we serve a God who doesn't run from hard things. Doesn't run from hard things. Number two, both of these men, both Jesus and Jonah, make a sacrifice for salvation. The sailors ask Jonah what needs to happen in order for the storm to stop. Jonah tells them that if that's what they want, that they're gonna have to throw him overboard. And that's obviously not what they want. They don't want to have blood on their hands. And so they, they try to think of any other way. They try to row harder to get back to shore. They try to lighten the load of the ship. None of it works. The storm only gets worse. So they relent. And they had to be thinking to, their, to themselves, is it going to be us or Jonah? Let's go with Jonah, right? And so they, <laughs> yeah, like as any of us probably, um, they throw them into the raging sea and the waters become calm. And as we've mentioned already in the series, you know, the storm is the result of what Jonah did. And so Jonah deserves this storm, right? And even though he deserved the storm, him going overboard was sacrificial in the sense that he was willing to give his life so that the sailors could live. Jonah's sacrifice is what led to their saving, it's what led to their salvation. Are you, are you catching the story within the story? What makes Jesus greater than Jonah is that. He doesn't deserve the cross. Jonah deserved the storm, right? Jonah deserved to probably be thrown overboard here because he's, he's been operating out of disobedience. Jesus doesn't deserve the cross, but he sacrifices his life anyway. He didn't deserve death, but Jesus, catch he goes to a cruel, rugged cross. That's what he does because sin had a wage and that wage is death. That's what Paul tells us. And instead of you having to die for your sin, Jesus loved you so much that he decided to take your place. Huge thought. This is critical, a critical theological truth right here that, that we can miss and, and not completely understand. And it's this right here, that Jesus didn't just die for you, Jesus died as you. It's not just for you, it's as you. It's. it's he's taking on your sin and my sin. He's taking on your punishment and my punishment. And when he went to that cross, his blood, it covered your past sins, thank you, Jesus. It covered your present sins, thank you, Jesus. And even your future sins are no match for the blood of Jesus. Jesus' sacrifice leads to salvation. Very similar to Jonah, but the difference is that it's not just salvation from death, it's salvation from Hell and the grave. You see, Jonah, when we read his story, he was a glim- really a glimpse of what was to come. He was an outline, he was a trace, he was a shadow. And if you read the book of Jonah without the lens of Jesus, you end up with a puzzle that's missing the final piece. And, uh, and I, I think that we have to be people who when we open the scriptures with the desire to seek and discover the road to Christ, we actually find what it's all about. That Jesus is all throughout the Bible and that he is all throughout the book of Jonah. Third thing, uh, third and final thing I wanna show and point out to you. Both men, both Jonah and Jesus go away for a while. Both of them go away for a while. Jonah is thrown overboard. He has to be thinking to himself that death is inevitable as you and i would there's no no life preserver right he, he's 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 a dead man but god in his mercy god in his provision causes a great fish to come along to swallow jonah whole it's fascinating and he and as he has swallowed whole the bible says that he spent 3 days and 3 nights in the belly of the fish and this is the place where he starts to be mended this is the place where he starts to to heal again inside the belly of the fish. It's where he starts to worship again. It's where he starts to pray again. It's where he starts to talk to God again. It's where he begins the conversation with God again. He hasn't spoken to God until he's in, the, you know, from the moment God spoke to him, he hasn't talked to God until he's in the belly of the fish. This is where he, everything begins to, to restore and reconcile in terms of his relationship with God. I want you to look at Matthew 12 with me. These are these are, these are are fascinating verses. Uh, these are Jesus's words. Matthew 12 uh Again, New Testament, 38 through 41, it says, then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, said to Jesus, teacher, we wanna see a miraculous sign from you. He said, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now, no one, and and, and now I'm sorry, now one greater than Jonah is here. What Jesus says, the men of Nineveh, he's saying look, like Jonah came along with with an impossible message. He came along to the city of Nineveh with a message of repentance and it seemed like foolishness and yet in spite of it, the entire city repented, all of them. All of them. These are Assyrians. These are the sworn enemies of Israel and they all repented and started to worship Yahweh. He says, I, I have come along as, as, as a better Jonah and I've come with a message of repentance as well, and yet you're not hearing me. You're not receiving it. So he says in the last day, in the day of judgment, the Ninevites are actually gonna stand up in judgment because they received the message and listened to it. You received the message and rejected it. Man, this is so good. He's greater than Jonah. And yet, in, in many ways, like, like, like the enemies received Jonah better than Jesus' own people received him. I want to show you why Jesus is so much better. I want you to look at a, a few things here. We believe at this church that Jesus is God. I've already said that. We believe that he's God. We believe that he came in the form of a baby, born in a manger, a miraculous virgin birth. He lived perfectly for 33 years on the earth. Give or take a year or two, He lived a sinless and righteous life. We believe this. That's orthodoxy. We believe at this church that it wasn't only the ancient Jews and Roman soldiers who put Jesus on the cross. We believe this. That it was also us and our sin that put nails in his hands and through his feet. Us. And that while we were doing that, Jesus was praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The Bible tells us, right, that Jesus died on that Friday, that he was placed inside a tomb and that he was buried for three days, that he went away for a while. But like Jonah, like Jonah, he couldn't stay buried. He had to conquer death, hell, and the grave. And on the third day, Scripture tells us that death essentially vomited Jesus back onto dry ground, couldn't hold him down, couldn't keep him. Jesus resurrected, he conquered death, amen? I want you to catch this thought with me here. It's it's, it's really good. Jesus was away, or Jonah was away for a while in the belly of a fish, but then he was spit up onto dry ground, and then he goes on to lead the greatest revival the world has ever seen, really, truly. I think it was like 120,000 people, the city of Nineveh was the largest city in the world at the time. I mean, you gotta understand You know, population was was, was much smaller back then. That's a humongous city. 120,000 people took three days to get through it. The entire city repents. It's the greatest revival in the history of the world. Jesus went away for a while into a tomb, but then he was spit up out of the grave, comes back to life, and 2023 years later, he offers us the greatest revival when we put our faith and trust in him. He's a true and greater Jonah. Romans 8, 11, one of my favorite verses, and I'm about to close. You can go ahead and come on up. Um, just says this, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, if the spirit of God who, who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, inside of you, he who, raised Christ from the dead will also, he who raised Christ from the dead, that spirit will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. This scripture is what we believe. This is what we teach. This is what, and this is what we live into every single day. I want to help you with this because I... I, I I just think that if, if you're not careful, you can read the Bible and especially the Old Testament, and you can think, you know, like I want to be like those men and those women, because there's so many that we respect, and we're just like, man, that'd be awesome. Before you know it, we start to turn these men and women into something that they aren't, which you know has been an issue in the church, to kind of to kind of um, elevate men and women, historical figures as saints and things, to to a level that, that is just unattainable. But. I think, I think it starts from a good place. It's like, I want to have a faith like Abraham. I want obedience like, like Noah. I want to have strength like Gideon. And you start to go down the list. I want to be like these people. And, 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 I, and I do understand what people mean when they're saying that, but it's not the point of the Bible. That's not what the Bible is about. The point of the Bible is that these were all men and women and they were hooked up to the grace of God and that you and I have access to that same kind of grace and what they did, you and I can do even more. That's that's the point of the Bible. It's it's Jesus, him conquering death, and him empowering you and I to live in a way the majority of history never could. And I think that just, if, if, if at any point in this series, you know, you've walked out of here thinking, especially after the revival in Nineveh, you walked out of here thinking, man, I want to be like Jonah. Hopefully it wasn't like the earlier parts or the, or the last chapter, you're like, man, I... Like to be like Jonah and run from God, no. But if you, if you're like, man, I'd like to turn my life around. I'd like to do some pretty amazing things. And you're like, I'd like to be like Jonah. Look at how Nineveh repented at his preaching. You've missed the point, because Jonah was just a glimpse of what was to come. He was just a glimpse of the gospel. He was a, just a glimpse of grace. And this is the point of the Bible: that every person in the Bible that you respect is a glimpse. It's a foreshadow of Jesus. Tim Keller talks about this. He, uh, famous pastor, theologian, uh, author, and, and, and uh, passed away earlier this year, actually. Um, but he wrote uh, something that I think is just so powerful, and it kind of ties this all together. Um, and I want you to, to follow it with me. He says, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. All right? the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus passed the, passed the test in the garden. And his obedience is imputed to us. It's, it's taken from his account and it's put into our account. We are credited with his righteousness. That's 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out for our acquittal, not our condemnation. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void, not knowing whither he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount but was truly sacrificed for us all. God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me. Now we can say to God, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled with God and took the blow of justice. We deserve so that we like Jacob receive only the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job. I love this. The truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory, and they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. They didn't do anything, and yet they still had victory. Look, I'm about to finish here, but, but look, when you read the stories of the Old Testament and you, and, and you start to kind of read yourself in, be careful when you do that. Be careful which part you play. When you read the story of David and Goliath, I want you to know you're not David. You're not David. Jesus is David. Okay? When you read the scriptures, you've got to be very, very careful. you got to look for Jesus. you you got to travel the road that leads to Christ. Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace but lost the ultimate heavenly one who didn't just risk his life but gave his life to save his people and then finally Jesus is the true and better Jonah. Come on. He's the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so we could be brought in. I came here this morning to tell somebody that Jesus is the true and better Jonah. He's the true and better Jonah that he went into the went into the belly of the earth for 3 days and 3 nights just to save his people. And that same power that conquered death, hell, and the grave, it now lives in you. It now lives in me. This is the beauty of what we believe. This is the power of what we believe. It's not It's not powerless and stale. A book that's 2,000 years old and all of this stuff, and, and in many cases, even older than that, it is living and active. Hebrews 4, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing joints and marrow, It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. It's live, it's living. Because it's not about the, 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 the pages of the word, it's about the person of the word. The person of the word is what gives it power. And so may we just be people who hunger for the living word of God. Because without it, All we do is just starve. Would you stand? Bow your heads for a moment here. Usually I like to ask for a response and things in this moment, and I just think the response is to be people of the word. The response is to hunger for God's word, to not treat it like something that that we take for granted and just kind of toss it aside and it's always going to be there whenever we want it but to be people who hunger for it who, who who truly believe that we cannot live without it and so god i pray over our church this morning father that you would just awaken us to the truth of your word the stories within the stories i thank you that all of it points to jesus but well, we thank you for the example of jonah but i thank you that that's not the ultimate example I thank you for the stories we can learn from him and all the things he did and didn't do. But I thank you, God, that along came someone who was far better, far greater, who wasn't disobedient to the mission, but was obedient, who laid his life down as the ultimate sacrifice, who went into the earth for three days and three nights and was spit out of the grave to conquer death, to conquer hell, to give us life in a way that no one had ever known prior to that. And so God, today may we be people who, who uh, even when we struggle with the scriptures, we search, we search for Jesus. We search for the road that takes us to him. God, may your word come alive and may it nourish us going forward out of here in ways maybe it hasn't before. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen and amen.